Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. Thank you for joining me here on Brighter Evening. My name is Josh, and tonight we're going to talk about something that I don't think gets a lot of airtime. Um, and it's the idea of digital freedom. Now, I wouldn't say that this isn't something that you don't hear about, but I'd like to bring a bit of a different perspective to it, and that's why I say it's something you don't you don't get a lot of airtime on. Um, now, I'm going to start with my definition of digital freedom, and it really comes down to two things. One is owning your own data. If you create something, if you have a contact list, whether or not that's truly yours. Uh, one of the common problems, right, is that you put your data into some platform and they make a change. Change the terms of service, change the way they operate, maybe they go out of business, maybe they get purchased. And the data that you created, the data that belongs to you, changes in some way. And that can be anxiety inducing. It can be bad. If a company goes out of business, who knows what the buyer is going to do with it? Any agreement you had, well, it may not have fully been an agreement, right? A lot of times it's a privacy policy and privacy policies sort of go out the window when a company goes out of business and gets purchased. Um, another thing is about mobility and choice. The ability to choose the service you're using, choose where you get your data, if you even use a service to get the data, and the ability to move it around. So I'm going to talk about network-based protocols and services. Um, and I'll get into what all that means in just a minute, but I want to talk about just a few things we're not really going to go deep into tonight. Maybe I'll touch on them a little bit. One is file formats, how the data is stored. It's a very important thing, and it's something I don't think most of us think about very often. Um, the idea of software freedom. Uh, this is a topic which is really important to a certain group of people, and I don't think is well known outside of that group. And then there's the idea of lock-in and ecosystems, and this is something that I think is pretty widely known, and we'll touch on it a little bit, but a lot of times ecosystems is kind of the, the flip side of lock-in. They're kind of similar things, and it's talked about as though it's a positive thing, and I'm not really convinced that that's the case. So with those things out of the way, let's get into the meat of the topic. So the first question, what are products and services? It seems like a pretty simple question, right? What is a product? What is a service? These are terms that have been around for quite a long time. <laughs> um, so we'll just talk about them briefly. Software products are um, things like software packages such as uh, Photoshop or Microsoft Word, Putty, Chrome, Firefox. These are things you kind of have and install. Software-based services, a lot of times these are cloud services, but not, but not necessarily. So you could be thinking about things like Gmail, um, but you could also be talking about Adobe, Adobe Creative Cloud. Um, and other similar things to that. Many, many modern products are sold as a service. So rather than purchasing it once and you own a copy of it, which is the traditional way of developing software, a lot of companies looking for a more reliable ongoing revenue stream will sell it as a service. And they'll try to focus on the benefit to the user that they're paying for ongoing development so they can always have the latest version and so forth. Um, and there is some truth to it, but there's also kind of a, uh, a downside to that. One of the big downsides, of course, is that maybe you don't want the latest version. Maybe the version you have works the way you want it to, and you don't want to upgrade. You think about software packages from the the 1990s, early 2000s, the 1980s, right? These old video games and old productivity suites. You can go install them today and see what they look like, and some of these newer ones that you need to have the latest and greatest, and the server has to be online to authenticate you. You can't install those in 
in the future, right? Those aren't going to be available to look back unless the company behind it makes them available. So either, either software products or software services can be designed to lock you in, right? They can design it in such a way that you can get locked in and can't move off. Uh, th this goes to a variety of things, right? If you upload all of your pictures into some service, they own that, right? You can't just pull them out. And you'll see this with a lot of services. It's really easy to get all of your photos into Facebook. And while they have an export, there's not much you can do once you pull the photos out. Um, Google Photos is kind of this, you're, you're in the same boat. Now, whilst both services and products can be designed in a way that they lock you in, it's far more common for services to lock you in, right? Because there's this ongoing hosted component where if their service is offline, you can't have it. And with a product, if it's installed on your computer, you have that opportunity to just keep it on your computer. Even if it's woefully out of date and it's on an old computer, you can just keep that computer not connected to the internet and it's okay. Um, so product and services, I think most people are familiar with the idea, how they're different, right? The idea of a product is it's something you buy and a, a service is a thing someone does for you. But I think a lot less people are familiar with protocols. Now, protocol is kind of a standard English word, but in the technical sense, uh, we mean something particular, right? This is a term that means uh, technique or method for computers to talk to one another. So if you were developing the internet today, or you were developing a new thing that you wanted to put on online, or a new way to store stuff on disk, you have to come up with a way to say, all right, my computer is going to put these bits and bytes in this order, and then your computer is going to read them in that order, and it's going to understand what they mean. As a user of software, it's not something we think about very much, but it is something that happens constantly, and the people designing the software, well, they think about it a lot because it's very important to get that right. If you don't get it right, everything breaks. And protocols are the underlying technology for all the network software we use, whether it's your web browser, whether it's a voice over IP program, right? So you can do your voice chat, your video chat, all that stuff is built on top of protocols of different sorts. So let's talk about the history of protocols. And I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of what I'm going to say is sort of based on my observations and not necessarily based on a single history that's published somewhere. So you can totally go and dispute the exact order of things or maybe the way I categorize things, but I feel like this is a pretty fair way to look at it. If you look back at the earliest technologies of communication, right, we had the stuff like the telegraph, that was I'd say the first major electronic technological way of communicating. It was actually full of protocols. Um, there, there are special prosigns that people would send in Morse code and a prosign would be a few letters sent together. Um, they they have certain meanings, there's certain abbreviations, there's Q codes of different sorts. Um, in military and aviation, there's other codes that were used. So those were those are methods of conveying certain information that isn't necessarily directly related to the message. And that's important because you need to say this is the beginning of the message, this is the end of the message. Um, you know, I think the biggest joke, Morse code uh, prosign was please send with your left foot, right, for someone who's who's having a hard time. If you really stop and think about it, Morse code itself is a bit of a protocol. It's it's a method of communicating electronically that both sides agree on. And in time before voice communication, it was important because really the ability to just turn that circuit on and off was all they had. And so being able to come up with a way to turn that into something useful is actually really cool. Um, 
that gave way to phones, of course, right, with uh, Alexander Graham Bell and, and a lot of the other things that came after that. Um, the concept of the phone started simple, where you'd pick it up and the operator would plug you in and switch you in the switchboard and you'd talk to the person. But eventually they realized that automation was necessary. And so the concept of the phone network was probably by necessity this idea that you would have dumb endpoints, endpoints that don't understand anything. They're very simple devices, your phone. But they talk to a smart network, right? You pick up the phone, and an old rotary phone only needed a handful of pieces. It used a spring to dial. And when it when it dialed, the network, the phone network, would listen for these pulses, and it would do some intelligent things to connect you to the right person, to the point that long-distance phone calls were possible. You could make these complex connections all over the world. Some of the very earliest hackers out there were these phone freaker guys, and what they would do is they would use some stuff that had been published by the phone network to kind of take advantage of this and route their call over the world and make expensive phone calls for free. But the Internet was something different. The Internet actually flipped that on its head. The idea was the network's going to be kind of dumb. Certainly certainly not as intelligent as the 1990s phone network was. But the endpoints are going to be really smart. We're going to have computers in the end, and they can they can do a lot. You can program to do all kinds of stuff. I had the opportunity about a year ago to go to a conference where Vint Cerf was speaking. Vint Cerf is one of the very pioneers of the internet. Um, he He's one of the co-authors of the TCPIP standard, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's the basis for what the internet was built on. We were in Washington, D.C., and uh, he was speaking from this hotel, and he said that it was in that hotel he actually gave the first public demonstration of what became the internet technologies and as part of his research. And there were guys from Bell Laboratories there, or the, or the phone company, right, from AT&T, and they were sitting up front. And he's up there, and they're talking about packet switching technologies, and these guys from Bell were like, <laughs> kind of elbowing each other in the ribs, saying, this is never going to work. No way packet switching is going to be a thing. And yet, these guys who were experts experts in the history, right? They're experts in the past. Once packet switching became a thing, everything is running through the internet, right? It was a really interesting uh, transition. And so what, what this change of packet switching and smart networks, or smart endpoints rather, allows for is this idea that the network doesn't need to understand too much. You just need to manage the resources so that it doesn't get overloaded. The endpoints can be smart. Right, so packet switching is this idea you break up the data into little tiny chunks and they send it out and then the network just takes those little chunks and moves them around to where they need to go and the endpoints do something smart. The early internet was an interesting time. It's very different than today and yet very similar to today in some ways. The early internet consisted of large institutions, computers that were online, and these were multi-user computers. So you'd sit down at your terminal and you'd type in your username and your password and you'd get some kind of shell or prompt or something or a menu and you could go in and do some stuff. And some of my first experiences with computers years ago were, weren't too different than this, especially with the, the sort of online services. My first time seeing the internet, it was definitely like this. Um, my brother, who's a little older than me, took me out to his school and showed me how this stuff worked. I thought it looked really neat. I can't say I understood how it worked, but it was it was cool. I could see stuff like weather imagery that was available um, from, from satellites, from NOAA, and 
you know, being able to see the, the government's weather, weather satellite images wasn't something you could just do back then. So it was really neat. Um, but these shared systems, right, the, the thing that distinguishes them from today in a lot of ways is the fact that they were shared, and they, they weren't at all powerful by today's standards. Even the highest-end systems were, you know, less powerful than something you might have in a smart thermostat. Um, but every endpoint was a server. Every device on the network was a server. The things that connected into them were, were very low-power machines that were really just capable of displaying some text on a screen. Some weren't even that powerful, right? They were line printers. They'd print out on physical paper as you typed. And the fact that everything is a server influenced the way the early protocols and early systems in the Internet developed. Um, some of the early protocols were things like Telnet, Talk, Echo, Finger. Um, the way Telnet works is you, it's a, a text-based way to enter computers, right? It's a way to get a console or a terminal. Um, and, right, the idea is you'd Telnet into this other host on the network. Another one would be Talk. Talk uh, was one of the first chat programs out there, if not the first. And it wasn't exactly line-oriented like Telnet, so it wouldn't work in a, in a line printer. But it would split the screen in two, and as you typed, your text would go on one part of the screen, and the other person's would go on the other, and you'd talk back and forth, and it was kind of a cool thing to do. Um, you had Echo, which does what it sounds like. You send it a message, it sends it back to you. It was just a way to see if things are working. And a service called Finger. Finger was uh, sort of like the first blogging or personal homepage platform, uh, but it, it predates all those kind of concepts. So you'd set up a file on your, on your account in your university computer, your institutional computer, and someone could run this Finger program and your username and by doing that it would send back some information and you could kind of control what that was so you could for example say I'm out to lunch or I'm on vacation or my hobbies include water skiing and and dancing right you could do whatever you want with it and it's it, so you know you can kind of see echoes of that today um, you know with with what people do in social media and profile pages and things like that um, but these are very much protocols that are server to server or even internal within a server. Um, then there were some that were, I would call them fairly early protocols, but not the earliest. Um, and the two big ones are NNTP and SMTP. NNTP is the Network News Transport Protocol, which is for something called Usenet. Uh, today it's still around, although most people aren't using it for its original intended purpose. Uh, but originally, it was sort of like Reddit. It was the way that you would talk to people about some topic. And you could talk about whatever you want. They were organized into different categories. Um, it was a really, really interesting place to see. If you go look at any early 90s introduction to the Internet, Usenet is one of the services they talk about. It's also known as news groups. And every Internet connection came with Usenet access. Uh, SMTP is the... Uh, simple mail transfer protocol. It's the protocol still used today for sending emails between hosts. Um, these are server-to-server -server protocols, but they have a client component associated with them, which means that you can you can talk to a news server, a news group server. You can talk to a mail server from, say, a phone or a personal computer. So this is sort of where you start to see this separation between, like, the server infrastructure that's out there and, you know, in the data center, in the cloud, whatever, and the internal stuff that's in my network, my computer. Um, although in those days you probably didn't have your own network at home. You might have one computer 
And if you did, it maybe had a modem, and if you did, it'd be really slow. But you could possibly get on the network, right, if you were part of a university or something. Then there's the protocols I would say are kind of middle-aged. These came out of the early 90s, and they're a lot more oriented towards people having their own systems, their own computers. So HTTP is the big one. That's the protocol the web uses. So, you know, the web came out of Tim Berners-Lee's ideas. He came up with two main concepts. One was HTML, one was HTTP, and he envisioned it as a way to not just receive data, but also to publish it. And we all, we use that today, but not, not necessarily in the way he envisioned, the, the sort of publishing and updating features. Um, but it's really interesting if you go back and study what the idea was behind some of this stuff. Another middle-aged protocol where it's very much like, all right, I've got my computer, you've got yours, there's some server in the middle that we talk to is IRC, Internet Relay Chat. This was the first um, widespread multi-user chat that just kind of persisted for a long time. There are people that still use it today, people who are very devoted to it. Um, it was the basis for Slack. So if you use Slack at work, Slack started out as just some kind of uh, polish on top of an IRC server. So it's kind of like a very, very nice IRC program. And then there's some newer protocols beyond that. One is um, XMPP, also known as the Jabber protocol. It's an IM protocol, and it sought to solve some problems with um, the IM landscape, the instant message landscape, being fragmented. The idea was that, like with email, you would have the ability to set up your own server if you want to. So if you're a company or an enthusiast individual or a university, you'd have your own Jabber server and then the clients would connect to it so the users would connect in and you could chat not only with the people inside that organization but with other organizations it even had a method for linking to other instant message networks so you know AIM was really popular in the United States, MSN in a lot of countries um, ICQ you could create a gateway for it and run that and you could chat from your your XMPP account to these other services uh, there was also uh, a few other protocols that I'd say are a lot more modern. One is BitTorrent. Uh, BitTorrent's most known for uh, its use in uh, file transfers. A lot of it's used to, to pirate, but there's no reason for that. It, it's also used pretty widely for deploying uh, certain types of software. And the interesting thing about BitTorrent is it's a fully peer-to-peer -peer protocol. So the idea there was that if you're using BitTorrent, you can transfer some files. There's some really neat ideas behind it because when you transfer the files, you're transferring little chunks of it, and the most rare chunks of the file are the ones that get transferred first, which helps to make sure that um, the whole file is available, right, uh, before someone goes offline or whatever. So that was a really unique idea. Um, another protocol that's been become common is WebRTC. It's actually built on top of the web, and it's, it's used for real-time communications, whether that's voice, video, uh, you could use it to send files if you if you want to build something like BitTorrent on top of it. So there's a lot of these protocols, and the reason I'm talking about it is because, first, I want you to understand that these protocols cover every use case imaginable for networking, right? Whether it's chatting, whether it's web browsing, whether it's uh, you know sending files, whether it's video, there are open protocols for this stuff. And protocols bring freedom today. I'm just going to throw a few of these out here that are maybe a little lower level, some we've already talked about, that you probably use day in and day out without thinking about it. The first one is TCP IP. Most people have heard of an IP address. TCP rides on top of IP to give us this 
layer of communication that's reliable and that the right packets go in the right order and all that kind of stuff so that when when you send someone an email it shows up in the right order and not jumbled up or something uh, ethernet right we plug in an ethernet cable we just expect it to kind of work uh, Wi-Fi same thing right everyone's got Wi-Fi at their house at the hotel on the bus um, Wi-Fi is a protocol it's a standard it actually defines a lot of stuff um, from the type of radio transmission it uses to send the information to the way it sends data and then on top of Ethernet or Wi-Fi, we put TCP/IP. Um, the web in general, right? It's based on HTTP, which is an, a protocol. There's some open standards above it too that we use: HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Um, email is an open standard, right? We talked about SMTP. Anyone can go set up an email server and have their own email separate from everyone else. Podcasting. Uh, podcasting uses RSS, which is a technology based on XML and HTTP. So you you have your own hosting for podcasting and you just you know put it out there, put it in the right format, and anyone can do it. When I wanted to start this podcast, I decided to host it myself because I didn't like the idea of whatever platform I use controlling my content, making it hard for me to move my podcast somewhere else because the feeds changed and all my subscribers get left out in the cold. Uh, we talked about Jabber and XMPP. That's another open standard that uh, some people are using. It's been used uh, in the past by Google and by Facebook, although as they move to kind of close their environments more, they moved away from it. Um, and even the format of calendar files that you send in emails between different providers, that's an open standard. That's a, essentially a protocol. The earlier days of the internet were full of these protocols, right? You wouldn't get an internet connection at home when you got your dial-up internet connection without it having uh, connections to NNTP, to, to Usenet. You'd, you'd get email provided to you. You'd have access to the web. Maybe you maybe they had their own IRC server. Maybe you connected to someone else's. When you downloaded a chat program, it was probably an IRC program, and you got to pick where you connected. Now, that's all changed, right? We've gone from protocols being kind of preeminent in many cases to products and services. Now, there were always companies like AOL that had their sort of little sandbox that you couldn't get out of, but anyone who is serious wanted to get off of just AOL and get to the broader world. Um, and, you know, the, these sort of products are an old idea. And the key thing that makes a product that's not protocol-centric kind of obnoxious in some sense is that it's limited to one company, the company that owns the product or produces the product. Um Many of these really big companies prefer these walled gardens, right? And you just think about this, and, and when you realize that it makes a lot of sense. No matter who your email provider is, if you use Apple Mail or Gmail, Yahoo Mail, personally hosted mail, your company's mail, Outlook.com, you can email each other. There's no requirement to be on Gmail to email other Gmail users, or if you're on Apple, you can email other Apple users. We expect that. We expect it to work for everyone. Right, Just like we expect when we pick up a phone and make a phone call, it shouldn't matter what type of phone the other person has, the call should connect. But you can't do that with iMessage and WhatsApp, or WhatsApp and Hangouts, or Hangouts and iMessage. These are totally different programs. Internally, they use some sort of protocol, but it's not a standard protocol. It's not a method of just communicating out to the world. All you can communicate with is other users on that platform. And a lot of these modern products, because of that, limit freedom. And I'd argue that they limit freedom intentionally. 
the companies are trying to work in their own financial interest to keep people on their platform so they can sell advertisements. At least that's generally the business model. Not restricted to that, though. But they intentionally limit this freedom so that you're in their world and they have some degree of control over you. It's not all products, it's not all services, but it's the preeminent model today. Now, interestingly, in the last 10 years, we've had the growth of mobile, which has led to the growth of cloud technologies. So I'm going to start by talking about the cloud. I think pretty much everyone who's going to be listening to a podcast understands the growth of mobile from you know, old dumb phones to feature phones to smartphones and just what's happened to smartphones since, you know, roughly 2007. And I think most people have heard of the cloud, but I don't think everyone understands what it is. So we'll start with with my favorite definition of the cloud, which is the cloud is someone else's computer, right? That's all it is. There's some computer somewhere in a data center that you're using, right? It's probably Amazon's, to be honest. Amazon Web Services is the big cloud provider. Most services you use online are, are based on that. Um, cloud is generally marketed as a high-tech, cutting-edge thing that's available everywhere, right? It's this cool new idea. We go into the cloud, especially when it's marketed to consumers. That's how it is. I, I think that's a little funny in a way because cloud is essentially going back to that early model of the Internet where you can you have a, a dumb terminal, right? In this case, it's a web browser, and you connect into this more powerful server, and it tells you what to display, and then that server is always online. Now, it is more high-tech than that, but it's sort of similar to that, right? It's that plus your dumb terminal fits in your pocket, right? Your phone fits in your pocket. Um, and you've got these apps that only do a fraction of, of the work. The majority of what's happening is actually in this server. Um, if you want to talk about the business of cloud, though, beyond just this kind of funny idea that it's someone else's computer and it's marketed as a new idea, but it's kind of a rehashing of an old idea. In fact, that, that old idea is an idea that's popped up about every 10 or 15 years in the industry, right, with thin clients and, and the terminal model and cloud and all this stuff. Um, but if you want to look a little bit deeper into it, what the business model of cloud is, it always ends with as a service. So there are three main categories of cloud. There's infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. The clouds that most users typically deal with are um, software as a service. Those are your Dropboxes and Gmails and uh, you know what have you, right? The the different different cloud products people are typically familiar with. Um, infrastructure as a service is really what Amazon Web Services generally sells. That's their products like EC2 and S3, where they take care of having the server for you, and as a as a service provider, you would build on top of those servers. Platform as a service is like that, but they do more work for you. So Amazon Web Services and Google Cloud Engine are big players in this, where they say, use our database, use our uh, programming language, and we'll provide the ability to scale. Um, interestingly, right, all this cloud stuff, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, to a certain extent at least, all of those things are critical to the mobile world, the mobile phone you have in your pocket, the the tablet, right? All those sorts of mobile devices. And now you're going to wonder why, right? Why is this cloud technology that's super centralized and in data centers so important to this device that's super mobile? Well, there's a few reasons. One is that most people, at least in, in more wealthy countries, are multi-device people. 
they have a computer, maybe they have a tablet or a computer. Uh, they've got a phone, right? They've got these different things. So you've got your your multiple devices that you're using to access things. Maybe maybe if you don't even have that, you might have just a phone and you go to the library and you have access to your Google Docs through the computer or you're in a school system that gives out Chromebooks, right? You've got multiple devices that you're using to connect to things. And that's a hard problem, right, to synchronize the data around. So if you have a centralized service, it's pretty helpful. Another big issue is semi-offline devices. Now, we're more connected than we've ever been, right? The devices in our pockets have cellular connections and Wi-Fi connections and Bluetooth connections. So they have a lot of ways to get data online. But these devices still go offline for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're in a bad cell area. Maybe the battery dies. Maybe it's trying to save battery. When that happens, if someone sends you a message, you still want to receive it when it's back online. Um, battery life, like I just alluded to, is a big issue. Um, you can't just keep a bunch of network connections open because that keeps the radio on your phone on. And when that happens, you've got battery drain. So Another reason to have the cloud is you have this online persistent thing, and then you can get rid of, you know, it, it, it prevent battery drain. You just check it when you're ready, or you only keep um, one connection open. That's a trick that Google uses for Android and Apple uses for uh, iOS, is they have one connection that they keep open to their central server, and by keeping that one connection open, they don't have to keep a bunch of connections open, and it saves battery life. Um, so... The other, the other reason that cloud became so important is that there's some network funny business going on out there. And what I mean by network funny business is the internet isn't as end-to-end -end as it used to be, right? When it first came online, everyone could connect to everyone directly, but because of a limited number of IP addresses, the desires of ISPs, and other things, it's not as end-to-end. -end. Um, you've got these, this concept of middle boxes, which is a whole topic that, you know, you, you need a network engineer to really understand. They kind of fiddle with things in a way that's a little weird, and that can break some stuff. And so, you know, it might cause your device to be kind of semi-offline for a period of time for certain types of stuff you're doing. Um, you also have these long-lived connections, right? So keeping a long-lived connection to this Google server, this Apple server, that requires some specialization. And... Um, there are a lot of networks that will allow those to stay open for a long time, but not other things. And so these sort of things of mobile in the cloud, we're not going to go to a world where we're not using mobile phones again, at least not without some sort of big problem in society. So this whole idea of the cloud, it's, it's part and parcel with this, you know, kind of feeling we have of surveillance capitalism, but it solves problems you have to deal with. And so you can deal with these problems, and you can have protocols that do it. But there are some downsides to protocols, and we should talk about those. Okay, the first one is that company financial interest problem I was talking about earlier. Companies want their walled garden, and it's easier for them to maintain that if they're using their own closed system that has their own internal protocol. Also, if they want to make their own changes when they want to make their changes, it's much easier for their developers if they're in control of everything. Um, it can be difficult getting a consensus. That's a, a real problem with these protocols. There was a, a funny story. Years ago, someone wanted to create a standard for pushing email out to a client that was connected. And this would be a, like on a laptop or a desktop computer. 
there are some ways of doing it with like Outlook, but for um, IMAP and a whole other bunch of technologies, they wanted to have a standard, and they got their their group together for the standards body, and they said we need a we need a name, and they couldn't agree on a name, so they called it the Pink Lemonade Stack. Name made no sense, but that's the name they came up with because getting consensus is actually really hard among different vendors, and then when you do get consensus, you're kind of frozen in time. And this is something you probably don't notice, but you do notice when you think about email. Email is frozen in the 1980s. We've put some stuff on top of it to allow delivery of rich text and attachments. Those are old ideas, right? So you've got, you know, your bold and colors and stuff and attachments. No one thinks about emails without those. Those are built on it, but really adding a new feature to email is incredibly difficult because it's a protocol and it's an old protocol and it's one everyone uses and everyone speaks. Changing that's hard. But I think it is important. I think it is important that we try to find ways to find protocols that help bring us freedom, that that give you the ability to maintain ownership of your data, provide your own hosting. And now look, most people aren't going to become an enthusiast that are going to host their own mail server. But you can go switch to FastMail. You could get your friend who likes to do that stuff to host it for you. You could stick with Gmail. But having the option is great. I'd love to have that option with chat services. And I've tried. I've tried setting up some of these things, right? I've set up a Jabber server, and it's honestly not quite ready for the world today. But there are some protocols I'm interested in uh, in the future where, where I th think things are going. There's a few protocols that are a little bit offbeat or that are up-and-comers. Um, first is is like the security focused protocols, right? I'd say these ones are a little bit more offbeat. Uh, Tor and I2P, um, these are best known for being part of the dark web or the deep web. Um, I guess I guess deep web is probably the the correct term because dark web could refer to anything that you can't access directly from a web browser without logging in. But these are are protocols that are designed to provide you with anonymity in your uh, like web browsing or communications. Now, you've got some responsibility of how you use it to maintain that anonymity, but that can be really important. It could be that you don't want your insurance company to buy from your search provider what health conditions you're searching for. It could be you're trying to do something illegal. It could be that you just don't like everyone knowing what you're doing. Tor is cool for that because you can get on the public internet and have your information hidden as long as you use it correctly. I2P is similar to Tor, but it only is for its stuff in the in its own network. So once you connect to I2P, you can get to I2P only resources. There's some other stuff out there like distributed VPNs like Tank or Zero Tier, uh, really interesting stuff. Um, they're they're VPNs in the more classical sense where you're creating a private network just for your computers, uh, whether that's you as a company or your house or whatever. Uh, or your cell phone, for that matter, right? You can you can join this VPN, um, but they do it without the same level of centralization that's typically there. So to me, those are some really interesting protocols because they provide a new sense of security. And each one's the, of those three, and there's lots of others, of course, they solve their own problems. Um, there's also some interesting stuff in peer-to-peer. -peer. So uh, I'll talk about two that that are older. Um, BitTorrent. We've already talked about what it is and how it works a little bit really cool protocol because it, it came up with some really new ideas. There's a network called Fast Track. 
Uh, it's not that popular anymore, but it was mainly used for piracy with these software packages like Morpheus years and years ago. And the Fast Track network had some interesting ideas as well because each member of it became part of this network in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion, so each computer could connect to other computers. But some computers in the network got elected to be super nodes. And by doing that, it was able to impose enough order on the network to make it perform well. And if you ever use some of these other things uh, like LimeWire that uh, relied on the Nutella network, you could see that the performance was much better. Uh, so really interesting ideas going in, in those. There's some newer ones that are out there that are based on some kind of blockchain type technologies, uh, which is the technology behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but they're being used very differently. They're being used for decentralization. So two of them that are really interesting are IPFS and DAT, D-A-T, and these are used to provide a file system or a set of a way to get to files that's distributed. As long as your computer's online, you can share out your kind of web page or your file with it. And if it gets to be popular, other users of this service, of this protocol, are going to replicate it for you. It all happens automatically, and it's sort of like a bit torrenty flavor of the web, uh, which is a really neat idea because it doesn't require so much centralized hosting infrastructure. You don't need this big cloud provider to, to serve your files up to millions of users. Um, there's some other stuff similar to it, like Library, which is a video sharing site that's based on similar technology. So really interesting ideas there. And a lot of what that's doing is it's decentralizing, um, pulling away from needing centralized cloud providers to something that's a lot more distributed. Uh, there's another one that's really interesting, which is called Jammy. It used to be called uh, Ring.cx. Jammy is spelled, or Jam, I think it's Jammy, JML maybe. Uh, but it's J-A-M-L, and uh, it is a decentralized communications software package. So it, it has an open protocol, and the uh, software itself is open, and you can use it to send chat messages, audio messages, video messages, video calls, and phone calls. Really interesting idea because it is fully decentralized, um, and that's really cool. The downside is, of course, it gets to be a little bit tricky when you're both on uh, cell phones, because when you're both on cell phones, you run into the problem of you can, you're not often both online with the phone turned on, right? Going back to that whole battery life thing on mobile devices, it's one of the big challenges with older protocols on phones, is that phone, when it goes offline, it's not receiving messages, and so you have to, you have to have both phones online. Um, one of the big things is that these phones, like they, they shut everything down when the screen's off and you're not using the application. The application terminates. It's put to sleep. And they do that because you just, you know, you don't want to drain that, the battery on that phone. No one likes that. Um, so I've been talking about all this stuff. I want to talk just for a few more minutes about how we move forward. Um, we need to build protocols for the world today. We need new protocols, maybe upgrades to existing protocols, but we need protocols that work in the world we're in. So this is probably going to involve some centralized services. We have to have that because we have mobile devices that go offline. Um, as an individual, at a minimum, if you're using a service, prefer interoperable services. Right? Use email, use whatever service you can find that interoperates with others and doesn't lock you in. Uh, there was a really cool paper called uh, Local First Services. It was by Martin Kleppman, Adam Wiggins, 
Peter Van uh, Hardenberg and Mark McGann. Um, the paper was called Local First Software, Own Your Own Data in Spite of the Cloud, and it was from the uh, SIGPLAN conference in the 2019 Association for Computing Machinery, the ACM. They're one of the big, uh, one of the two big, actually, computer science uh, trade organizations. So the idea in Local First Software is that the software works locally on your own computer or your own phone with full functionality. If the cloud side of the service is available or other users are available, it synchronizes uh, the data and it involves, allows real-time connections. Uh, there's a few other things in there. I recommend you go read it. If you go to the website, brighterevening.com, and look at this episode, there's a link to the Locals First Software uh, paper and, or an article about the paper, and then you can get to the paper from there. Um, really interesting stuff. The idea is software should work offline, and when it's online, that should enhance it. So synchronization, um, things like that. They're, they're using some new computer science techniques to help show that this is possible and how it's possible. Uh, so that's that being discussed is something I think is that's really positive because when those technologies become widespread, we'll be able to start building protocols that use them in really positive ways. Um, you start looking at the technology behind things like zero tier, which I mentioned earlier. Start mixing some of that stuff in. You start to be able to get into a world where things can be more decentralized, and maybe um, people will be able to have a small computer in their house that handles some of their personal cloud stuff that needs to be somewhat centralized. Um, I think about France. If you go look up this company Free, they've been a big disruptor in the French telecommunications market. Very interesting what they've done. They put a box in everyone's house called a Free Box, and then it became a, a competitive thing where each ISP wanted to do the same thing, so everyone had their own box. And the box provided a bunch of services within the house, things like file sharing within the house. You could add a few more pieces of software to that, and have it not just be file sharing within the house, but a, a cloud file storage service, right? Something like Dropbox. You could use a technology like SyncThing for that. You could have it be the place where you serve up your IPFS files or your DAT files. It could be the central repository or the to store your messages while you're offline on your phone. So there's a lot of cool stuff that you can you can do. Um, the last thing I'd say that we should do to move forward is to be more peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, the internet was designed to be peer-to-peer. -peer. Early networks were peer-to-peer -peer, and there are new designs out there for it. I've talked about a bunch of them already. Um, there are some built-in built challenges with peer-to-peer. -peer. You've got the bootstrapping problem, finding the network. When you first join a network, um, you've got to figure out how to how to get into it and then you can learn about other nodes in the network from, from nodes within the network, right? So it's sort of like finding the first member of a club and then that member of the club can point out the other members of the club. Um, you've got all these NAT middle boxes. We've talked about the offline delivery and power management challenges. So those things are built in. Um, I'd say another challenge is that we're running out of IP version 4 addresses. IPv4 is exhausting as we speak. Um, it's It's been a slow train crash. It's something we've known is coming. Prices on these addresses go up. There's going to be more NAT, more middle boxes, more weird stuff happening on the network. But IP version 6 has been around for over 20 years, and ISPs and network providers have slowly been transitioning. Once they do, um, this, this whole suite of technologies is going to make it possible to return to a peer-to-peer -peer internet. 
And once we're back on a peer-to-peer -peer internet, things are going to get a lot more interesting. We'll be able to do things like give each phone a unique IP address, give each computer a unique IP address, and maybe have some ports that they can respond on. So when the message comes in, it wouldn't be a big stretch of technology to allow a direct connection. Maybe even an authenticated direct connection to prevent people from draining your battery by messing with you because they know your IP. There are ways that this stuff can work. And that's what I want to see happen moving forward. As individuals, we can only pick the best services and technologies that are available to us that solve our needs. But if people are thinking about this, people start demanding it. And we'll start to get to a world where we can own our data more. Now, a lot of the questions about data ownership and um, you know fair use of technology and these sorts of things, they're important. But I think a lot of them become a lot less important once you're in control of your data, not the provider. People wouldn't be so worried about Facebook if they could just instantly move somewhere else easily. Now, in reality, anything like that is going to mean that when you move, you're probably going to be doing something along the lines of setting up a new email account. But the idea of setting up a new email account isn't that scary, right? People are used to getting an email from time to time. Hey, this is my new account. Contact me here. Or, hey, I got a new phone number. Contact me here. If moving away from Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever service you have and you get upset with was that easy, I think more people would do it. There's the possibility for that kind of stuff, but it starts with us owning our data. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.